Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. I want to tell you a story real quick. Long about the time I was in a Bible college, maybe junior year, I can't remember what year that was, 84-ish, 85-ish, around in there. I was, my roommate in college was a guy named Kent Sparks. I, to this day, love Kent dearly. He is brilliant. He's got a PhD. He's, I don't know what I was doing rooming with this cat because he's way smarter than me, but really smart guy, came from a really smart family. His dad was an executive for IBM in Atlanta, Georgia, and upon returning from home for a visit one time during my junior year, Kent comes into the room all excited. He said, Brett, I'm going to tell you something but you can't tell anybody. Okay. I'm going to tell you something, and you can't tell anybody, but Brett, I'm telling you, what I'm going to tell you is going to change the world. Right. Yeah, okay. Okay, Kent, I'll bite. What are you going to tell me about that is about to change the world? And he said, I just spent the weekend with my dad who works for IBM IBM is getting ready to announce something to the world that's going to change the world. It's called the PC. He said, and I'm, you know, I got the deer in the headlights look going. I have no idea the significance of what he's talking about. PC, what is PC? Personal computer, Brett, personal computer. Everybody will have a computer on their desk. Every house, everybody's going to have a computer. Not registering with me. Okay, like, no big deal. Can we just say PC, game changer? Am I, am I there with that? I mean, does that change the world or what? And, and Kent was trying to tell me, and I didn't get it. But, but that's why the, I, I needed to explain to you why the PC is on the screen to begin the whole thing. It was a game changer. The PC was a game changer. I get asked once in a while, Brett, you know, Easter's coming. Are you, you, you getting nervous? You getting excited? Um, the answer is yes and no. Um, the, the no part of it is I typically don't get nervous about preaching to groups of people. I mean, I know some of you, that's like your biggest fear. That You, you have nightmares about that, right? Public speaking, you don't want to do that. That part doesn't bother me. I was kind of born to do that. That's not a problem. But what does concern me and what is, uh, makes me nervous, does make me nervous this morning is, is who, to whom I'm speaking. Um, now, the home folk, the people that come here all the time, you know, they, they know I'm, you know, they know about me. So, but, but, but um, some of you only come at certain times of the year, maybe on a Christmas and maybe on an Easter, and I'm not, I get that, okay? I'm not putting that down. I'm not getting on you about that. I understand that. Some of you have come out of church backgrounds that have been so horrible that you're done with church, and the only time you go is when someone you deeply love, which might be the case today, right? You might be here today because someone you deeply love and you respect and care about asked you to come. Or maybe mama said she would cook you dinner if you came with her to church today, or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, but some of you, you don't come that often, and, and again, I, I understand. I'm not, I'm not putting you down for that at all, um, but I'm nervous this morning because I know I might only have one shot with you. I know that I might only have one chance to penetrate your heart, to get you to understand something that maybe you've never understood before. And so, you know, for some of you, 
It's, it's really important. And, and for some of you, you're going to be asking yourself the question, do I want to take the next step toward Jesus or am I just going to stay where I have been all this time? And I feel that pressure. I know I probably shouldn't. In fact, I, I, I shouldn't. I should, you know, God calls me to preach. God says, Brett, your job is to just preach. My job is to penetrate a heart. My job is to help someone to understand. But, and I get that, but I still, there's a, there's a pressure that I, if I'm honest, I feel. We're going to talk about Easter today. We'll get there in a little bit. But I want to take a few minutes just to talk about faith, what it is and what it's not. And I I just, if you're new to us, the first thing I want you to know is there's no pressure here. You're not expected to speak a special language or, you know, I hope you've been made to feel very welcome. You you just kick back and enjoy the morning. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to just give me the next half hour or so. Give me the next few minutes. Open your mind and just say, you know, I don't know if I buy what this guy's selling or not, but I'm at least going to listen with an open mind for the next several minutes. That's really, that's all I ask. I mean, you're going to be here anyway. Um, so, so, you know, at least give me that, that shot and we'll see what we can do. I want to talk about faith today, specifically why some of us in the room, and the people that I was just talking to, I may be talking to you again, why you left the faith a long time ago. You may have grown up in the church and may have had a faith at one point, and you just finally said, you know, chuck it, I'm, I'm not doing that. I want to talk about what maybe happened in that that caused that to happen. Uh, some of us used to have faith. We used to believe in Jesus and all the stuff, but then something happened in our life. And now some of us are actually sitting in this room, maybe people who go here all the time who would never want anybody to know this, but they sit silently in their seat and they really wonder if they really believe everything that everybody else believes. So I want to look this morning at a story uh, from Mark chapter 2. This is a story you've probably heard before. It's a great story. I love this story. But just just kick back, enjoy the story, and, uh, and let me see if I can pique your interest at a couple of places and maybe ask one or two questions that you've never quite considered from that perspective, and we'll just see what happens. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Again, this is a great story. A few days later, when, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, this small town in Israel, um, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So between the time Jesus is born in Bethlehem to the time he's about 30, Jesus worked construction. That's pretty much what he did. And I don't know what that looked like. Maybe he, he was a blue-collar guy. Maybe he built houses. Maybe he built tables. Maybe he maybe did chairs. I don't know. Maybe if your cabinets broke, he was the guy that you called to come fix your cabinets. I'm not really sure what kind of carpentry Jesus did, but when he was, up until the time he was 30, that's what he did. And then at 30, something interesting happened. His cousin, John the Baptist, baptized him in the Jordan River. After that, he went on the road, and he started to preach and to talk, uh, teach people about God. And he was teaching them stuff that they had never heard before, stuff that they had never really thought about. He walked around Israel saying, look, there's a lot of misinformation about God. There's a lot of misinformation about me, and I'm here to clear it up for you. The main thing Jesus was saying was, God doesn't hate you. God does not hate you. There were people in Jesus' day, much like there are today, I find that as I talk to adults about their faith and their life, they don't come right out and say it, but it's, it's an underlying thing. A lot of adults are walking around thinking that God hates their guts. And a lot of people are walking around thinking, man, God just doesn't love me all that much. And Jesus came to say, 
God's crazy about you. He loves you. That's why he sent me. And, and God made life, and God sent me to show you a better way to live it. But the main thing Jesus would say that he wanted to tell us is that God loves you, and that's why he sent me. You can't pay for your sins by yourself. You can try, but Jesus would say, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm willing to take care of that for you. And Jesus would say, I know you don't know what that means, but I'll explain it later. If you would just lean your life against me, I will connect you back to God. In fact, the word priest, a, a large number of you come from Catholic backgrounds. It's amazing how many of you I talk to that, that somewhere in your background, um, you know, there's Catholicism, and that's fine. You're perfectly welcome here. We're glad to have you. Um, but you grew up with a priest. When I say the word priest, that's, you're right locked into that. You know exactly what that is. You grew up going to the building. and The word priest literally means someone who builds a bridge. And so in your experience, if you grew up Catholic, you know what a priest does. You, you went to the church, and there was a little booth there you went into, and you, you confessed and talked to him, and then he would talk to God on your behalf. He was kind of like a bridge builder between you and God. Well, we believe as we study Jesus in the Bible, we believe that Jesus is kind of like the, the ultimate high priest. Like he's the best bridge builder. He's the one that, that did it better than anybody else, and he can con- permanently connect us back to God. And, and, you know, as he talked like that, as he tried to build bridges with people, people found him fascinating. But what they really found fascinating was this idea that he would travel around and it was kind of like the magic show. He, would, you know, he was doing miracles at all these different places. Word was getting out. And while what he said was interesting, what they really wanted to see was they wanted to see him walk into a room and heal somebody with leprosy. They wanted to watch him walk into a room where somebody had a fever and he took the fever away. They wanted to see him raise somebody from the dead. They'd heard all these stories. They wanted to see these things. And that's what drew the really big crowd. So when Jesus shows up in this small town in Capernaum, the people in the town are all fired up to go see the Jesus show. And you know what? I don't blame them. I I would too. Wouldn't you? If I said to you, tonight at 8 p.m., Jesus is going to be at the Holman Center, so let's all go down there. And, And I read in the paper that he was at Lucas Oil Stadium last week, and you know, he, there were weak people that were walking in. He was making them stronger. There were, you know, was sticking arms back on people and, and bringing people back to life and curing baldness. And, you know, I made that last one up, but he should have. He should have. The point is, I would buy a ticket to that show. I would want to see that. So Jesus comes to town. Big crowds show up. Verse 3, some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Now, they kind of just say, that's some good friends right there, all right? That's four really good friends. If you can't walk and you can't move around very much and these guys are willing to, 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 to bring you to this guy that supposedly can fix you, carry you all across town, that's some pretty good friends. And I don't know their story. I don't know how this guy came to be paralyzed, but he can't walk. And that's tragic in our culture. Okay, that's, it's bad for that to be the case in our culture. Back then, it was even more tragic. There's no support system. There's no social services. There are no hospitals. There are no therapists. There's nothing like that. In this culture, if you can't walk, you can't work. If you can't work, you don't eat. And if you don't eat, you die. 
And so he's got four friends that are really worried about him. And I don't know how it happened, but I think one of them found out that the Jesus show was going to be in town. And he got his buddies together and he said, hey, the Jesus show is over in Capernaum. Let's, let's go there. Let's go get Joe. Made up name, but we're going to call him Joe, okay? Let's go get Joe, this, this paralyzed guy, our friend. And they show up at Joe's house. Hey, Joe, the Jesus show's in town. We're going to take you to him. He's going to fix you. He fixes people. Let's go. And they throw Joe on some kind of stretcher, or they put him in some kind of, I don't know how they did it, but somehow they've got Joe in this thing, and they get over there, and it's so crowded, there are people everywhere, it's backed up, they can't get to Jesus. They can't get in to see him, they can't can't get close enough. What are we going to do? The other guy's, I don't know. So they go around the back of this house, somehow figure out how to get up on the roof of this house, and somebody somebody starts to measure off the paces. I think Jesus is, I think he's under there. And they start to dig a hole in the roof of this house that Jesus is preaching in. That needs to settle in on you, okay? They didn't own this house. I don't even know that they knew who owned the house. They dug a hole through the house, okay? What would you do if somebody climbed up on top of your house while you had company and dug a hole through it? Wouldn't go real good, don't think. And they get this hole, and and down goes Joe. They start to lower Joe. And they're looking down through there, and it's like, hey, yeah, you know, Jesus has got ceiling tile in his hair now, and, and, you know, Joe's kind of going down, and, hey, how you doing, Jesus, and excuse me, pardon me. I mean, all these people are watching, and the sermon's over, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know what Jesus was talking about, but whatever it was, he's not talking about it anymore, because I can tell you if somebody dropped in front of here right now, the sermon's over. We're going home, all right? And they get him in front of Jesus, and yeah, this is why we brought him. We got him right there in front of Jesus. And Joe's friends are looking through the hole and saying, look, it's our, it's our friend, his, his legs, they're, they're broken, they're fit. they don't work right. Can you fix them? Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw, this is interesting to me, when Jesus saw their faith, so he sees their faith, but he's going to say something to the paralytic. When Jesus saw their faith, the four of the guys up there, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Really? <laughs> and I wasn't there, but if air makes a noise as it leaves a room, I think you would have heard it about right here. What did he say? His sins are forgiven. What, what is it? Did he say his sins are forgiven? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's really weird. And you got to think that the four guys on the roof are thinking to themselves, no, 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 no. Thanks for that. We'll file that away for later. But we meant his legs, okay? His legs are messed up. They don't work. You see, this is why we came. We need you to, and, and here's the, here it is. We need you to fix his bigger problem. We need you to fix his bigger problem. In their eyes, He can't walk. That's the bigger problem. We'll get to that heaven and hell thing later, but he can't walk. Could you pay attention to that? And here's another thing. You know, it's easy for us to read this and get critical. 
of these guys. It, it's easy to read this, and, but you know what? We're no different than them. I'm not. Think about the conversations that you have had with God, the passionate conversations that you have had with God in those moments, you know, because I have to be honest with you, I don't lose a lot of sleep. Once in a while, I might get a little, you know, worked up over some of this, but I haven't lost much sleep as I'm driving, you know, or, you know, as I'm driving down the road, I don't get off in a daydream about, you know, I wonder if I'm safe, you know, if I'm going to heaven or hell, I wonder if I'm a sinner or not. Sure, there are times that I think about those kind of things. You know, there's times when I do something, I'm like, that was not good, that was not good. Most of the time, 99.9% of the time, my conversations with God are, I need him to do stuff for me. Isn't that how it is for you? I'm not talking about spiritual stuff. I mean physical stuff, financial stuff, relational stuff. Like, I really messed up, and I, I, I know I shouldn't have done that, but, but God, could you please help me out? That's what I need. My most passionate conversation with God always goes something like this. Hey, God, my mom's sick. My mom is sick. Could you fix that? Or, hey, God, I, I've got this shortage, and I don't know how I'm going to pay for all these things. You know, can you, can you help me with that? Or, hey, God, I know I shouldn't have been going that fast, but could you really please make me invisible to that police officer right now? That'd be great. Or if you're a kid, you probably prayed that prayer about your parents. Lord, just help me to be invisible to my parents. That's all. In Jesus' name, amen. And back to these guys. I I just bet, I, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think they carried their paralyzed friend all through the streets of Capernaum to this crowded house kicked a hole in the roof, vandalized this guy's house, lowered him down because they were worried about the condition of his heart. They were worried about his legs, and they did all of this for his legs. I think the biggest emotion in the room, when Jesus looked down and said, son, your sins are forgiven, I think the biggest emotion in the room was disappointment. I needed Jesus to do something for me, and he comes back with some churchy line about my sins. Thanks, Lord, that doesn't help me. Don't you feel like that sometimes? I need, to, I need God to do this and this, and I get some churchy response in return, and, and it's like, you know, that really doesn't help me on Tuesday. I mean, it's going to be very helpful at my funeral, and I don't plan on dying for a while, so I need God to do some stuff now. I'm thinking the number one emotion in the room as he says this to this guy is disappointment. It's really not what we were looking for. There was another group of people in the room, and they felt an entirely different emotion. They actually get mad. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law, these are the religious leaders, some teachers of the law were sitting there. These, these were guys that were just waiting for Jesus to mess up, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, so they could hammer him and say to everybody, see, he's a fake. You don't want to follow him. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, remember that, they're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, which is a sin, by the way. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're thinking that to themselves. If you're taking notes, there's, there's two things that you might want to write down at this point. The first one is this. If Jesus is ever around, don't think to yourself. He knows what you're thinking. 
he knows what you're thinking. That, that could not go so well for me a lot of the time. So number two, you can write this down. He is so smart, so smart. This is all a setup. Jesus knows the crowd he's talking to. He knows why they're there. He knows why they brought Joe and put Joe in front of him. It wasn't so that Jesus would look down and say that his sins were forgiven. He knows that all these people have crowded in around him, not because they think he's a fantastic speaker, which he may have been, but he knows they, they're all around him because they want to see the miracles. They want to see the tricks. They want to see the show. And he knows that they brought Joe in, not his real name, and laid him on the floor. He knew what they wanted. But before he does that, and spoiler alert, he does do that. He's going to use this opportunity in this little room in the middle of nowhere to to teach this huge truth that people still talk about 2,000 years later. So see, if Jesus had said, okay, and then just jumped into the business of fixing Joe's legs, some of the people might have said, ah, you know, that's a cool trick, or somebody would have written it off and said, ah, it's a gimmick, some kind of gimmick. Somebody else might have said, you know, that's kind of weird. You know, some might have been freaked out. Have you seen Chris Angel on television? Dude freaks me out, all right? He just kind of weirds me out a little bit. I get, I mean, I get kind of creepy when I see him, but But before Jesus does anything, he looks at this guy and he says, your sins are forgiven. The immediate response by the people who are in the room are raised eyebrows, like that's not supposed to happen. Time out. You're not allowed to say that. Only God can say that. And the question comes, here's the question, does he think he's God? Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, that would have freaked me out. And at that point, I'd be pointing to the guy next to me, and I'd been saying, it was him, not me. It was him. I like you. I think you're awesome. He's the one with the problem. And then Jesus asks a loaded question. I love this question. Verse 9, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Which one's easier to say? The answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. How do you know if that worked? Right? How do you know if somebody can actually do that? If you came up to me in the lobby after I get done here in a minute and you said, Brett, I've, I've done some really serious sinning and I've jacked up my life and I looked at you and said, uh, you know, don't worry about it. Go on. You're forgiven. Who am I? Right? I got no business forgiving your sin. Brett forgave my sins. Big deal. How do you know if it worked? How do you know if it's even true? It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. But if somebody says, hey, I know you've been crippled your whole life, but you just take up your mat now and you can go home. That's harder. Or at least it's riskier because they can put a metric on that. They can measure that. They can tell whether or not you actually are able to do that. If you're paralyzed all your life and some, you know, one of your buddies walks up and says, hey, stop being paralyzed, pick up your bed and go home. And then th- that you actually saw that happen. If I'm in the room, I'd be saying, okay, that's the real deal. Don't mess with that guy. Don't mess with him. He can do that stuff. He's qualified. 
So, and this is important to the whole setup. Maybe we should pay attention to the rest of what he's saying. Here's what Jesus says, verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You want proof that I can forgive sin? I'm about to do something physical with this guy. But that's not my point. My point is, I can do this. Will you believe me if I can do this? Verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And if I was there, I'd be saying, Me too! I've never seen anything like that. Especially if you're Joe. You're happy if you're Joe right now. You're happy if you're Joe's friends. Joe's friends are coming down off the roof. It's high five time, right? If you're in the room and you just watch that happen, the room's cleared, okay? You're running out of the room. You're rejoicing. You can't believe what you've just seen. And there's a part of me that thinks that Jesus is standing there, ceiling tile in his hair, you know, just kind of watching this whole scene unfold. Nobody around anymore because they're all, they're all looking at Joe running around out in the front yard. And he's saying to him, oh, you missed it. You missed the more important thing. Because, you know, I fixed this guy's temporary problem, his legs, and, and that's important, but here's the truth. It's just a matter of time before something else goes wrong with Joe. And Jesus would say, yeah, I promised him that his sins were forgiven, and to deliver on that promise, I'm going to have to be beaten and whipped and executed by being nailed to a Roman cross to pay for Joe's sins and for everybody else's sins. That's how you know your sins have been forgiven. And if you'll trust me, I'll do that. And it's not about what about the next time I sin. Listen, this is a, a, this is a permanent thing. It's a once-in-a-lifetime, it's a once, once-for-all-time thing. It's something that you don't worry about. Anymore. I'll do that once for all. And even though I just healed this guy's legs and I'm not taking any of that from him, it's a matter of time before Joe or whoever has the next accident or gets sick or loses a job or their wife runs out on them, or maybe they just get old and eventually wear out. That is true of everybody in the room this morning. Their, their, their faith will be one long season of, I had a problem, I went to Jesus, and he fixed it. Right? If he fixes it, I have faith. If he doesn't fix it, then I struggle. Isn't that where we are, some of us, right now? And you might not admit that out loud, but in your mind, it's like, you know, I've waited and waited and waited for God to fix this, and he's not fixing it. And to be honest with you, Brett, I'm losing faith. See, faith is just a a religious Bible word that really could be said, this is how I see it. This is what I think. This is how I see the world. This is how I see life. Faith is my operating system It's the thing that I lean my life against. That's what your faith is. And every one of you in the room has something that you're leaning your life against, something that you're counting on. It might be money. It might be your job. It might be your spouse. It might be Jesus. But you're leaning your life up against something. And that's not bad unless that something is movable. 
unless that something can fail. There are some of you in the room this morning that have faith that if you eat right and you exercise and you put the right things in your body, that you'll be healthy and you'll live a long time and and you lean your life against that. That's the primary thing you lean your life against. And that's why you eat what you eat. But and you think that'll pay off for you, and, and health-wise, it probably will. Probably will. Some people buy into the karma thing. You know what karma is? Karma is the opposite of grace. Karma is, if I do good things, then good things come back to me. If I do bad things, then bad things come back to me. We went to Thailand. We saw that in practice in Thailand. Um, it's the opposite of, of grace. See, we think if I have faith, The karma system kind of says, if I do A, B, and C, then D will happen. And my faith is kind of like a formula or or a combination to increase the odds of getting God to do stuff according to my combination. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but the problem is when we do that with God in the hopes that if I do A, B, and C, and I do it enough times, then I can get God to do D, even though God didn't want to do D. And I think that we think God is in heaven going, Daggone it, I wasn't going to do D, but they ABC'd me into it. That's religion. And some of us spend our whole life trying to do that, trying to figure out the right amount of A, B, and C. We're nice to puppies, and we read our Bible, and we pray three times a day, then God's going to do what we want God to do. And, it just, and if it happens that way, if we do do the formula and it goes our way, it just reinforces this idea that, see, when you do the formula, God comes through for you. So that the next time we need something, we just go back to the formula. But one day you do it thinking that's what faith is, and God doesn't do what you want him to do. You ever been there? And it just rocks your world. And if you're like me, when when that happens, when when you get to that place where you were doing the formula and you thought God was going to come through for you in the formula and he doesn't, you, you pretty much land in one of two places. The first place you land is there must be something wrong with me. I'm not doing it right. I need to change this. I need to go here. I need to do this. So there's either something wrong with me or, number two, there's something wrong with God. And either he can't help me or he won't help me and he's not fixing my problem and our faith takes a big hit. Honestly, that's that's a lot of our story, isn't it? Maybe even this morning you're sitting in here thinking, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. I, I don't even know if I trust him. You know, if you go to church, you get you go to church three times, you get a raise. This place would be full right? Every Sunday. If that was the case, we have people all over the place. But you know what? If that's what we've got our faith leaned up against, it's not going to last very long. Bad things are going to happen. People you know are going to die. They're going to get sick. They're going to lose their job. And it may be a friend or it might be you, might be me. If your faith is based on A plus B plus C equals D, then your faith is pretty fragile. And it's just a matter of time before faith is going to fall apart for you. Because even if it fixes your problem today, it's just a matter of time until something comes along that doesn't get fixed. And if you were counting on A, B, and C to fix the problem and it doesn't, then your faith gets really shaky. 
and you're not going to like it, and you're not going to understand, you're not going to be able to change it or explain it no matter how you pray or how much, when, when that happens and your faith starts to fall apart and you'll find yourself in the front yard lifting your fist to God saying, I don't know if I believe in you anymore. Which is why we have got to find something that we can lean our life up against, something that won't move or change or fail. We need something that we can say, I can depend on that. Which is why today is so important. Because Easter changes everything. It's a whole new deal. Easter is the game changer. It is the game changer. Easter is the most important belief there is to believe in in all of Christianity. You can believe all the other stuff about Christianity But if Easter didn't happen, it's a moot point. It all falls apart if Easter didn't happen. Without Easter, everything that Jesus ever said or did doesn't matter. He's just another guy out there with a philosophy and a promise that may or may not help your life. Easter is the most important thing. You say, what, Brett, what about Christmas? Christmas is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it is. It is, and I don't want to take anything away from Christmas. I love Christmas. But the same thing with Christmas. Look, you were born... Anybody can be born. You were born, not in a manger, not to a virgin, but you were born. I mean, there's people born every day. And what Jesus taught was good. Jesus died on a cross to pay for your sins and my sins, and I'm not taking anything away from any of that. His death accomplished something that my death for you could never accomplish for you. But again, all through history, there have been people who have died for great causes. But our faith is not based on the birth of Jesus. I believe it. But my life is not propped up by Christmas. And my faith is not based on the teachings of Jesus, although I believe them. And I believe that's the way we should live. My faith isn't even built on the the idea that Jesus died for my sins. Now, don't walk out on me just yet. My faith is based upon an event that actually happened in history. Not only did Jesus die on the cross for my sins, but then three days later he arose from the dead just like he promised he would. So, and here's the phrase Jesus used, that you would know that I have the authority, that I am who I said I was, that I will do what I said I would do. So there's really only one person in the history of persons who backed up every promise he ever made. Jesus said, something's going to happen, and when it does, you'll know that everything I've been saying is the truth. Here's what's going to happen. A Friday night is coming, and they're going to execute me on a cross, and they're going to drive nails into my body, and I'm going to die. And they're going to stick me in a hole and forget all about me. And they will say, he was a fake. He wasn't who he said he was. But three days later, I'm going to come back to life as the ultimate proof that I am God in the flesh, and I'm really going to come back, and I'm going to, I'm going to show you that I really do love you and that you can trust me and that you can believe that I'm going to keep every promise I ever made to you, so pay attention. I will rise from the dead. That's what Jesus was saying. And again, anybody can make promises like that, but here's the thing. He did it. He did it. That's why you're here this morning. And for the next several weeks, he appeared to several hundred people. Nobody else has ever done that, just Jesus. 
I'm not saying the other guys are bad, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying the other guys are bad, but nobody's ever done what Jesus has done. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Gandhi, not even Oprah. They just haven't. They've all had birthdays. They've all had some really cool things that they've taught or that they've said, and they all died. Except Oprah, but... Have you seen her lately? It's just a matter of time, okay? It's just a matter of time. Here's the thing. Nobody else died for your sins. And even if they did, how do you know it worked? No one else died for your sins and then rose from the dead like they said they would. Just Jesus. Easter is the reason that this definition that I'm about to show you is true. I want to show you this. We, we, I use this from time to time. This is how we define faith around here. Faith is the confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do everything he said he would do. And the reason that you should believe in that is because of Easter. Jesus never promised. I wish he had but he didn't. Jesus never promised that if you had faith, if you had enough faith that nothing would ever go wrong for you. You will not find that in the Bible. He never promised that if you have enough faith, everything will make sense and that the more faith you have, the easier your life will get. That is not in the Bible. There are TV guys on television preaching that, but I'm telling you, that's not in the Bible. Jesus said, if you or I ever lean our faith up against anything other than what what Jesus did in dying and raising from the dead, that it's movable, whatever that other thing would be that we'd lean up against, it's movable, and it will eventually let us down. And I know that's not really emotionally satisfying, but it's just the truth. And if it's true, if this whole Easter thing is true, what does Jesus promise me? What can I expect See, my dad might get sick and pass away. My kids could get sick. I could lose my job. Or this could happen over here or over there. What can I believe in and lean my life against when it gets really hard or really bad? What never changes? What can I count on every morning when I wake up? I want to read to you what what you can count on every morning when you wake up. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I absolutely love this passage. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Here's the proof that God loves you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, me and you. Still. Still. Meaning, you didn't get yourself all cleaned up and then Jesus said, oh, now I'll die for you. No, we are a mess. We are a mess and Jesus says, in your mess, In your sin, in your fallenness, I'm going to die for you. Jesus died for you so that you could be forgiven. So you can wake up every morning and count on this. No matter what happens, God loves me, God died for me, and he will forgive my sin no matter what. No matter what. Here's the other promise you can count on every single day of your life. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You can lean your life up against that. Jesus died for you. He rose from the grave. And God will forgive you. So 
So you can know these two things. Jesus died for me, and in dying for me, offers me forgiveness. And in raising, proves to me that he can keep the promise that you can confidently go to God. We've been talking about being bold. You can boldly go before God's throne, and you will receive, promise, you will receive grace and mercy. Question is this. What are you leaning your life up against, and how solid is it? I'm going to give you the chance this morning to lean your life up against Jesus. If you've never done that before, if you've never confessed with your mouth, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to give you the chance to do that this morning. If you've never given your heart to Christ, you need to do that today. Let's pray together and then we'll stand and sing. God, where would we even start to say thank you for what you've done for us? How do we even begin to comprehend a God who would see us in the state we were in and are in? And you would die for us to take the sin of the world on your shoulders, to to remove it from us. To guarantee that we would be forgiven. The thing we need more than anything else is we need to be forgiven. And you offer that to us this morning. Father, I pray. If there's there's one person in this room who has never known the forgiveness of God and want to experience that, that they would do that this morning. That Easter truly would make a difference today. That the resurrection of Christ would be the final proof that someone would say, you know what, I never saw it like that before, but he, he did prove. He did prove that everything he said he would do. Father, for the rest of us who are Christians in the room this morning, we just stand in awe at these scriptures that we just read, that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.